You know the bomber runs from World War II where you had hundreds and thousands of aircraft being mobilized? Well, this is the war against the virus, okay? And we are literally talking about a World War II scale of mobilization to save millions of people from uh, mortality and morbidity of COVID-19. Growth Magic is a podcast exploring the techniques of exceptional leaders and how they weave together ingenuity, intent, and serendipity to realize big things. We invite storytellers from business, champions of impact, fast growth, entrepreneurs, and executives of major change to reveal their secrets and share their vision for the new world. I'm Hugh Evans. And I'm Liz Wise. And today we're joined by the incredible Brian Von Herzen. He's the founder and executive director of the Climate Foundation. He's the prestigious Hertz Fellowship recipient, and he's the founder of Careplanes. He's also Silicon Valley alum. He's an ocean scientist. He's an engineer and an entrepreneur. And most importantly, he's one of the loveliest guys in EnviroTech ever. Well, we're so lucky to have you here with us today. Um, Brian, first and foremost, how do you and Hugh know each other? Well, we met through my good friend Galen, who I met at Woodfordia uh, in Australia uh, one year when we were talking about marine permaculture. Galen expressed interest, and we've been friends ever since. And when we started working on a care planes approach for um, hyperbaric oxygen uh, solutions for COVID-19 and other challenges, uh, Galen suggested that we get together with uh, Hugh and see how we could really synergize the uh, creative process, the refining of the idea, and its development and uh, funding. And so that's where we are today. Well, we are certainly lucky to have you here. Hugh, perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about, about Careplanes or you and Brian together. Yeah, for sure. So Careplanes is an incredibly innovative model to employ the available capacity of aeroplanes around the world to support mm-hmm. uh, the treatment of COVID patients, creating a hyperbaric therapy for people who are experiencing uh, hypoxia. And um, Brian has... Uh, come up with this idea with his team and we've been working on a, on a process to, to commercialize it. And one thing we found out about this, which amazed me, is that um, COVID-19 patients out of hospital who are recovering take more than a month, many of them, to recover from the pulmonary, the cardiovascular, and the neurophysiological uh, consequences of the viral disease. And what we found is that time and time again, with hyperbaric oxygen treatment, the recovery time for these patients can be cut in half. That instead of months, they're only taking weeks to get back to work and, and just a couple of weeks. And so that transformation of being able to speed the recovery and improve the response um, to, to recovering these patients, just it's a great way to really uh, recover and rehab- rehabilitate from viral disease. So. How, how did you come up with this, this, I mean, it's quite an amazing idea as a, as a solution for patients? Well, it came because I was listening closely to the emergency doctors in New York, the ER docs, and they were saying, you know, what we're seeing is not a disease of failure of respiration. It's a failure of oxygenation. And there's a very interesting subtle difference, and that is respiration is you can't breathe. You actually can't inhale and exhale. But the patients were breathing, inhaling, and exhaling in New York just fine. What they weren't getting is the SpO2, um, that is the blood oxygenation level on the little finger sampling devices, was dropping below 93%, below 90%, below 88%. 
these patients were not getting oxygen, enough oxygen, even on pure oxygen. And that's when I realized we've got $500 billion worth of stranded airliners sitting on the ground, and they're all capable of providing pure oxygen at above ambient pressure. And it turns out it doesn't take that much, about uh, half an atmosphere above standard pressure, to provide 50% more oxygen than they could get on a CPAP machine or get on a ventilator. And instead of having people dying on ventilators, you could actually have them surviving on care planes. And that is specifically the hyperbaric oxygen. And why not take all these stranded assets? I mean, we're not going to use all these international airliners anytime soon. Use those stranded assets to keep people alive, and we can have flying hospitals. And so that's the vision behind care planes. And we'll need to phase in. First is recovery, then is early treatment. And as the medical establishment becomes and really comes to understand it, we can have hospital beds, we could have intensive care, we could even have surgical operating rooms that can keep the patients at 50 to 60% more oxygen than they could get on a pure oxygen ventilator or respirator. You know, the bomber runs from World War II where you had hundreds and thousands of aircraft being mobilized. Well, this is the war against the virus, okay? And we are literally talking about a World War II scale of mobilization to save millions of people from uh, mortality and morbidity of COVID-19. Brian, you've, you've kind of come from a background in, in with a real focus on, on the environment. And I remember a couple of weeks ago when we, we first started talking, I asked you a question about how did you discover your purpose? And you gave me this great answer. You said, I was born into it. I would love for you to kind of tell me more about that. Yes. Well, my father was an oceanographer getting his PhD at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego. And uh, his uh, office mate uh, decided that it was uh, that he wanted to try to measure atmospheric carbon dioxide. And so he went out to Hawaii and on the side of Mauna Loa, he placed some sensors. And the year I was born, he started recording the Keeling curve and his name was Dave Keeling. And so that just happened to be the research group that I was <laughs> born into, if you will. My, my father was getting his PhD. My mother was actually uh, an administrative assistant for Walter Monk, who lived to be 100. And I got to meet him two years ago. And I shared with him the idea of marine permaculture, and he just loved it. I mean, he absolutely loved it. And what I love is that I, I didn't realize at the time that I was born into a special place at a special time. This research group was studying overpopulation, uh, carbon dioxide increases in the atmosphere, and the revolution of plate tectonics in the 1950s. And those three revolutions have proceeded. But it's amazing to me, I have this picture of Roger Revelle, who is running the institution at the time, uh, in 1965, shaking the hand of then-standing President Lyndon Johnson after delivering to him the first report on carbon dioxide increases in the atmosphere from man-made emissions and the potential effect on the climate. And that was 1965, some 55 years ago. And who would have thought you know, that <laughs> this progression would happen? Roger Revelle's daughter, lives next to us at the Climate House in Woods Hole. And uh, Mary Ravel Pachi uh, is our good friend and neighbor. And it's just a, a small circle, a small world. You know, this is a um, kind of a circular world, but little did I know that I was a, a carbon baby born into this world of trying to understand carbon dioxide and do something about it. And I was born right next to the sea. And little did I know that those kelp forests that were just a few hundred meters away from me would hold the key to the answer, that sliver of life, at the edge of the Pacific Ocean that could actually find a way to become our ocean pastures of 
upwelling, um, over, restoring overturning circulation, growing that beautiful kelp forest, the most productive ecosystem on the entire planet, to actually restore the oxygen, uh, fix the carbon dioxide, regenerate the fish habitat, feed the world, and feed and regenerate life in the oceans, all the while fixing carbon. And that's our vision for marine permaculture that we have to this day applied to the, I mean, literally the applicable area is the 100 million square kilometers between our uh, home in Australia and my birthplace in California. That subtropical and tropical ocean, less than 1% of one ocean, can feed the world, regenerate life in the ocean, and fix gigatons of carbon potentially. It's like the product of, of beautiful systems thinking and um, this kind of deep understanding of the, the, the intersection of life. Um, I'd love to talk to you more a little bit about how systems thinking kind of permeates science and permeates the solutions that we need for today's world. Um, Hugh, Hugh and I work in, a, in, in an organisation where, you know, we have to draw down on, on systems thinking in a number of different ways to bring disparate parts of our clients' organisations together um, to really kind of deconstruct problems so that we can start to develop solutions. What are the, the big lessons for you out of this approach? One of my favorite systems thinkers was Buckminster Fuller. And I just finished a workshop at the Buckminster Fuller Institute where we literally did a space camp. Uh, it's a trim tab space camp. So Buckminster Fuller had this idea of trim tabs, that a, a trim tab, tra tab sits on the tip of a rudder of a ship and, steer, and uh, steers the rudder. It moves the rudder, which then moves the entire ship. And similarly, on an airliner, like the ones we plan to use, um, there's a trim tab on the elevator that goes on the stabilizer and actually adjusts the pitch and the uh, rudder, if you will, of the, of the airliner. So we want to be the trim tab of systems thinking for the planet. And that's how we envision marine permaculture and our ability to regenerate life in the seas, in the soils, and even in society when it comes to treating COVID-19 and addressing many of the recovery challenges that we have from viral disease and other sorts of diseases. So being the trim tab is identify these system thinking challenges and opportunities and then seeing how to think out of the box. I love what President Dwight Eisenhower said, and that is, if you can't solve a problem, make it bigger. And what he meant by make it bigger is that increase the context of the problem so that you can actually solve a number of challenges together in a way that couldn't be solved individually. You know, hyperbaric oxygen is fine, but there are only 4,500 hyperbaric chambers in the world. And so you, they're like one or two place chambers. There's no way you can treat a million patients. But if we make the problem bigger and say, what are we going to do about all those airliners? There's 8,800 wide body airliners sitting on the ground today. And there's 39,000 pressurized airliners, three quarters of which are not being used. And so with hundreds of billions of dollars in stranded assets, how do we make these assets valuable? Well, mobile treatment centers, flying hospitals is an incredible way to save lives. We could save a million lives while we're revaluing these stranded assets. And that's how we make the problem bigger and solve the problem. And that's why we're so enthusiastic about innovations like CarePlanes, because this is the solution that the world needs today to actually ensure that we're going to stay healthy uh, and be able to recover quickly from a coronavirus pandemic. Our organization's very uh, focused on a, on a practice called co-design. And co-design is about the exhaustive research of stakeholder concerns and interests and trying to solve a problem uh, with a 360-degree view of all those stakeholder needs. 
and it's akin to the thinking of systems thinking, you know, where we, we look at the we try to look at the complete interdependent system and try and solve for that system by understanding all the interactions that exist within that system. One of the challenges with that is that often it, you know, making the problem bigger can make it somewhat intractable for some people to understand. And, uh, and you look at in climate, in climate science, there's a lot of fatigue out there for the messaging in climate science. And now we have the added challenge of a lot of people you know, being pushed back into poverty, a lot of people dealing with you know, the economic hardships that are coming from the COVID situation. You're a crusader in climate science and in making an impact with actions. Um, how do you feel about that challenge and how are we going to maintain uh, focus on the, on the big needs of this uh, planet? Well, on the co-design dimension of it, we need to start with uh, a, an, a, a deep understanding of the fields uh, that, that can apply. And in this case, we like to utilize marine technology, oceanography, marine biology, physical oceanography, and atmospheric and climate science. And so uh, that's really one of the reasons we moved to Woods Hole, which was a hometown for me. And uh, we moved back there. Um, and over the past 15 years, I have been working there and I took a sabbatical to understand algae. Uh, and then um, we formed the Climate House, I believe, in 2013. And over the nearly the past eight years, we've been uh, really taking a deep dive into the oceanography and the marine biology to understand the deep fundamentals of the carbon balance in the ocean and the carbon cycles and how these regenerative ecosystems like the kelp forest fixes carbon, regenerates life, and maintains a, a, sustainable, uh, a sustainable approach. Really, for millions of years, it's been fixing carbon. And it was from that deep understanding that we realized natural kelp forests do export carbon down the canyons and down the trenches and into deep water at fairly low efficiency, but it, they do so. And I realized that if we had the substrate and could re restore overturning circulation, because we were very surprised to learn that 40% of overturning circulation was shut down by war global warming getting into the surface layers of the ocean and actually creating a barrier to upwelling. And so by understanding these problems in physical oceanography, in marine biology, all of which needed solving, realized that if we could grow a kelp forest offshore, irrigate it with restored overturning circulation, uh, seawater, provide it with the macronutrients that it needed, we could grow the kelp forest, fix 10,000 tons of carbon dioxide per square kilometer per year, create enormous habitat, square kilometers for forage fishes, game fish, even apex predators, and then harvest a dozen valuable products uh, from these seaweed forests. We could then uh, fix enormous amounts of carbon, provide high-value products to the industries, and still export most of that carbon into the middle and deep ocean with using the residual seaweed that was left over from our process. So this was one of these integrative thinkings that really had to transcend, let's say, the climate science and the oceanography and the marine science to, and, and understanding the value chains and the products and the entrepreneurialism, the food, feed, and fertilizer that we could use to help feed the world at the same time we were taking care of nature and restoring a healthy climate. That's the kind of integrative process that we've been working on. You know, the diamonds that lie on the beach lie between disciplines. That if you really want to, you know, have tra transform, it's to learn two different disciplines that can be connected. And it's those rare je gel jewels and gems on the beach. They're between disciplines. They're in places where people haven't traveled so far. And that's something that we've been uh, enjoying for the past years is actually 
finding those opportunities that lie between, let's say, aviation and medicine. You know, who would have thought that you could combine the two and have a great solution? Yeah, and talking about um, opportunities and uh, journeys like that, um, uh, can you tell us a bit about your experience in those early days with the XPRIZE? Yes, well, back in the 1990s, I was uh, consulting for Interval Research Corporation, which was funded by Paul Allen, the uh, Microsoft co-founder. And he got very interested in the idea that uh, we could develop a space tourism business. So I actually flew my little Piper aircraft down to Mojave Desert and set up a meeting. And I think Paul flew his 757 airliner down from Seattle. And um, I introduced Paul Allen to Bert Rutan, and I wrote this business plan on space tourism that proposed using the uh, you know the X one fighter aircraft, uh, our you know test aircraft, the uh, the first uh, supersonic uh, suborbital type of uh, X plane, and that X plane was the inspiration for the architecture of the winning entry of the X prize. And so uh, my business plan effectively convinced uh, Paul Allen to put in twenty five million, and later Richard Branson put in multiples of that. Uh, I believe the first round was two hundred fifty million. And then he may have uh, doubled that up to build uh, Virgin Galactic. So we were very happy to write the original business plan that eventually launched uh, Virgin Galactic. I would just love to um, just wind the conversation back ever so slightly because I'm, I'm, I mean, you know, the X Prize stuff is is phenomenal, and and um, I'm, but I'm I'm caught on this kind of um, regenerative opportunities of, of the ocean. Um, you know, back in 2017, I found, well, I found some data from then saying that there was around 12 million tonnes of seaweed that was being grown and harvested annually, and three quarters of it came from China. Um, and I think the, the the global value of the crop was estimated to be around 5 billion and 5.6 billion US. Um, and most of that was, was, you know, 5 billion was coming from human consumption, which, you know, for me is mind blowing. Um, How's this changed in the last three years? I, I assume that it's, it's gotten much larger. It has increased dramatically. I think we're up to nearly 30 million tons of harvested seaweed, which is the largest harvest from the ocean of any individual species. So by tonnage, more, there's more seaweed harvested than all the fish in the ocean. And up to nearly 30 million tons, I believe the market size is nearly $15 billion today. And the next five years will be $25 billion. And so what's, what I love is working with integrative thinkers like Joe Kelly at the Australian Seaweed Institute, where she has a vision and she's articulated to develop a billion-dollar Australian seaweed industry from zero today, that in the ne- by the next decade, we'll have a billion-dollar seaweed industry in Australia for food, feed, and fertilizer that people can enjoy as food. We can use to uh, provide seaweed salt licks for cattle and uh, provide incredible increase in row crops and vegetables and even wineries with the uh, seaweed foliar biostimulants that are produced as a result of these seaweed products and these uh, seaweed forests that we can grow offshore. How does, um, how does someone get into the, 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 the seaweed farming game? Well, we are developing this year the Marine Permaculture Alliance, which is all about finding birds of a feather who wish to grow seaweed on the open ocean, whether it's a hectare family size farm a few kilometers from shore or a deep water 100 hectare commercial development that can grow enormous amounts of seaweed for cattle and uh, food and fertilizer uh, all over the planet. Um, So small and large scale, uh, there's an opportunity to utilize marine permaculture technology 
to effectively uh, stave off the Permian mass extinction one kelp forest at a time. And why do I say that? Because we know now that the Permian mass extinction was caused by a warming of the earth, a warming of the oceans that stratified the ocean, kept it from circulating, and that cut the oxygen, decreased the nutrient availability, the plants couldn't grow, and the result was hypoxia, ironically, (laughs) hypoxia of the ocean caused a loss of 96% of all the marine species on the planet. And that we know the Earth system is capable of that. And we look at the oxygen meters today, and we're 2% already to the Permian mass extinction just from the last few decades. There's definitely a pattern here, Brian. Um, Tell us a bit about regenerative capital. Um, Can we talk about the... uh, uh, coin is that is that kind of released yet? Is that official? Yes, we've done a soft release of the kelp coin, and the kelp coin is the concept that every kelp coin represents a ton of living kelp forest, the living seaweed forest on a marine permaculture, and that's regenerative natural capital. This is a hard asset in the sense that it uh, every coin is actually backed by a unique ton of living seaweed forest on a marine permaculture that fixes carbon each year, up to 10,000 tons per square kilometer per year. It actually regenerates fish habitat, so we get more forage fish, game fish, and apex predators. And that seaweed that's produced, uh, whatever is not used in products, can be sunk into the middle deep ocean. In fact, the kelp coins can be circulated, they can be a store of value, but when a kelp coin is retired, we sink a ton of seaweed, which is equal to a ton of carbon dioxide, into the middle of the deep ocean, where it remains for 100 to 4,000 years before it comes back. So if you need to offset your carbon, you buy some kelp coins, you retire them, and after their maturity date in 48 months, they actually become a carbon sequestration that will last for 100 to 4,000 years. What's your advice to businesses and people about what's next, what to, what to think about, what to focus on? It's, it's been said that uh, this year is the first year that we're on track for actually meeting the Paris commitments because we're actually down enough on carbon. So we need to do another one of these each year. But a New York prof- uh, University professor said that this pandemic is climate disruption at warp speed. And I think what he means by that is we have demonstrated the ability of our society to respond quickly to emergencies that are life-threatening. But when we realize that, in a sense, with climate change, we're boiling frogs slowly, and we're the frogs, then the magnitude of the disruption and the mortalities and the morbidity of climate disruption is even more profound than the pandemic. We should be actioning even more mobilization to respond to climate change than to the pandemic. The pandemic is just a rehearsal for what we need to do in terms of transforming our civilization into a climate-positive civilization that is sustainable. And we've got the opportunity to do that. Cut our carbon intensity by uh, 80%. D- develop technologies like marine permaculture that can draw down the rest of the carbon and get us back to a healthy climate. And regenerate life in the, o- in the ocean. Regenerate life in the soils. And ensure that we can have the healthy foods that generate a cognitive health span that will enable us all to live long and health- happy lives long and healthy lives. That's the opportunity that I see for a soft landing that gets us back to just a few billion people on the planet through voluntary family planning and other technologies that uh, give people choice 
and really get us to uh, what I would call the tribe of abundance, moving beyond the economics of scarcity. Love it. That's a brilliant note, I think, to wrap things up, Brian. It's been an incredibly interesting conversation and I've been uh, loving collaborating with you on Care Planes and looking forward to uh, continuing to work on exciting visionary projects. Thank you, Hugh. It's a real pleasure. For those of you who are interested in finding out more, um, we're going to provide some uh, links in the podcast description um, so you can read up on KelpCoin and all of the other wonderful things that are happening with CarePlanes and uh, the conversion of the planet to a habitable place for all of us for many, many years to come. Thank you again, Brian. It's been a a masterclass in in leadership and purpose design. Um, I'm really grateful to you for your time. My pleasure, Liz. Thanks for listening, guys. We do hope you really enjoyed that podcast. It was our first Growth Magic podcast with uh, Brian von Herzen. Special thank you to Liz Wise, our producer, and Mike Rishworth, our sound engineer. Please do stay in touch by subscribing to this podcast, and uh, you can also find more information at growthmagic.fm. In the next episode, you're going to meet Jim Estor. Jim was one of the founding board members of Research in Motion, which created BlackBerry. He also built his personal empire from zero to two billion in revenue. And more recently, Jim has founded Shipperbee, which is a disruptor in the global courier industry. Until then, stay safe.